I had no idea that I would be doing this uh, this morning until dinner last night. Um, Dr. Tour is very uh, persuasive when he wishes to be. Um, the introduction you should forget instantly. Um, I love W.H. Auden's definition of a professor as someone who speaks in someone else's sleep. That's uh, just about right. So if you're really exhausted, feel free. But I hope, I hope it won't work that way. Um, what I want to talk to you about this morning is what you face, because I, I knew it would be a young person's audience. Now, when I went off to university, I came from a Bible-believing home. I never remember a time when I didn't believe that the story that we have in the, the Gospels is essentially true. You can't explain the martyrdoms and everything that went after that by anything other than a commitment to something that had really happened. Uh, I listened to the two greatest preachers, Protestant preachers in my mind of the, uh, the middle of the last century. I had the choice on Sunday of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones or John Stott. Um, a pretty amazing choice. But neither of them got to my heart. I, didn't, I believed. I, I did not remember not believing. But they got to my head and not my heart for a long while. And in fact, I went for a 20-year journey in the wilderness after uh, leaving Lloyd-Jones's church and becoming a physician because I wasn't prepared for what was coming. And neither are you, which is why I do what I do now. Most people would have no idea, but most Christian physicians go for at least months, often years, in my case 20 years, without any subjective sense of Christ in their lives. Uh, they haven't lost their faith, actually. I wish someone had told me, once you ask yourself the question, have I ceased to believe? The answer is amazingly no. But there's very little feeling. That, in fact, there's no feeling for quite a long while. We have become addicted to feeling in a way that's wrong and we need to change. So, when I eventually came out the other end of this uh, experience, having done a lot of things and learnt a lot along the way, slowly pulled back into actually talking about the person I call the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't do that till my mid-40s. Don't wait that long. And it was students who pulled me out, and others. I mean, it took a lot of pressures from different directions. We weren't, when we married, I, my wife should not have married me. Thank God she did. I'd, we'd known one another for seven years on and off, but we usually lasted about six weeks because she's a redhead and we're both very, she's not anymore, but the, the temperament remains. Uh, we would fight and we both enjoyed it, uh, but we were both always right and that meant sparks would fly. And so we'd go our separate directions. We kept coming back. Uh, eventually, seven years later, just so you don't have any false ideas about me, I was working in medicine uh, in England, and in those days you lived in the hospital. So did the nurses. Uh, you had no official time off in your first job, five months and two weeks, 100 hours a week, my first check, 70 bucks for a month. But everything was covered, you had no costs. But you put young people at peak hormone flow under those circumstances and things go wrong. 
my wife-to-be came to see me, uh, found me again after about a year's gap in Oxford. The night before, the day before she came back into my life, that previous night, I had gone back to my room in the hospital and found a nurse in bed waiting for me that I hadn't even invited. And I heard the voice behind me, but it wasn't saying, this is the way, it was saying, this is not the way. And I was repentant as I realised what kind of reputation I must have by that stage. As I say, she shouldn't have married me, but she did. The Anglican priest who married us, I didn't know there was going to be a sermon at my wedding, but there was. And this man understood exactly where I was. So the text at my wedding was, no man setting out to build a tower doesn't first find out whether he's got enough bricks. And he was looking at me, basically saying, I don't think you've got enough bricks for this project called marriage. And I was smart enough to know that he was right. That took me back to church. Uh, and a long, steady uh, battle, ups and downs, uh, to come to where I am now. And grace is amazing. Yes, I have seen many tragedies. They don't, they don't move me to tears, but grace does. Uh, I, when I see grace erupt in a life as it did in mine with absolutely no reason except grace that blows me away entirely um, I, I'm almost tempted to tell you a story about the camps but if I do I shall cry so I won't do it um, because grace was seen there but the grace I want to talk about a very particular episode of grace in my life which I think you can learn something from. One of the turning points with this, I believe it's true, but no passion, was reading Bonhoeffer's little book, Life Together. It's a brilliant book. Uh, he was writing an account of what he thought German Christians would need to do if they're going to survive the Nazis. But a little bit that got to me was this. He said, when you're making it up. I, I, I'm very allergic to evangelical smiles because I think they're often totally false. Uh, when I know people are actually in a miserable state and they can't bear to say it, they haven't got to step one, which is to speak the truth. Uh, Boniface says when you're in that state where you're pretending or you're not, you have no affect, ask God to give you a passage of scripture from you to him from him to you in a very personal way just add it to your prayers Lord I need a scriptural text for life if you like uh, and I was doing that and at about that time um, I'd been going backwards and forwards to Africa a little bit and uh, on one of those trips to Africa I'd read Alan Bloom's book The Closing of the American Mind in which he describes you students as empty slates the reason being you have no history. So the way, what bothered Alan Bloom, who was a radical homosexual, but the best teacher of Aristotle and Plato the University of Chicago ever had, was that he couldn't teach the students because he needed the biblical metaphors. We, don't, we have no means of talking to one another except metaphorically to a very great degree. And the metaphors of the Western world that made our culture what it is are all biblical and you don't know them so you understand every word 
in a sentence, but you don't understand the meaning. Now, for instance, the example I'll use because it's quick and you will remember it. How many of you have seen the movie uh, Dunkirk? Good, a good number of you. They missed a huge opportunity because they're ignorant of the last, uh, how that ended. Kenneth Branagh standing on the jetty watching the last boat go to England was actually a Canadian. Uh, and the last telegram, and he died, the last telegram that was sent from the beach was three words, but if not. It arrived in London and was immediately understood. Uh, how many of you know what it means? You're almost alone. It's this, be it known unto you, King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace, but if not, we will not bend the knee. What a magnificent telegram to send. Even more magnificent, the culture was rich enough to immediately interpret it uh, correctly. Why? Well, when I went to school, we, had, we didn't do the stupid thing that you did here in America of taking the Bible out of high school. A chapter of the Bible was read to me in school, public school, for 12 years. Every day I was in school. I had a, two chapters because my mother read a chapter of the Bible to me before I went to school as well. Uh, that's very important to do. Even Sunday school was entirely Bible stories, which is what it should be. Because the one thing that small children have beyond any of us in this room is memory. They remember, I think, virtually everything they hear in the first five years of their life. So make sure it's things worth remembering. They can learn the Psalms and it comes back to you later. They should know all the stories of the Bible and they should hear them from their father's mouth. But that's another story. Then you have that richness of background that you can speak in richer language than you would without the Bible. I grew up in blue-collar Birmingham, the British equivalent of Detroit. The little church I went to, nobody had gone to university. My parents both left school aged 12 or 13. But they spoke to one another in a richer language than will happen in this church today because they inhabited the Scriptures. They would have got... You can try yourself, if you go to my website later, johnpatrick.ca, there is in fact a biblical literacy test there without the answers. But when you're really desperate, I'm sure Dr. Tour will know, know the answers. Um, there's about 60 phrases as they occur in, the bio, in, in English literature, but they're all biblical in base. So they're slightly modified, so you can't just use a concordance. That's actually, as an aside, a great advantage today because I can now quote scripture in the university and get away with it. As long as you don't do chapter and verse, you and you must paraphrase it, then they can't use Google. They'll usually, someone will look up and, and say, that's a quotation, isn't it? I say, well done, who do you think wrote it? They usually say Socrates, and I say, well, it was a wise man, but not that one. And I don't tell them who it was. I'll be out of there by the end of the day. Uh, and they won't find out till then. But you can plant scripture now, again, in the university. And of course, it's wisdom always goes through, even in paraphrase. So I'd been thinking about this. And somehow I said to a group of medical students, actually in a lecture in biochemistry, uh, how many medical students do we have here? Any? Yes, you know how painful biochemistry... Pre-med. Well, yes, in your world, not mine, yeah. Okay. Pre-med. How many pre-meds have we got? 
Oh, not many, just the same. Well, uh, biochemistry for a medical student is a total waste of time, but that's another story. Uh, they're not capable of understanding it at any meaningful practical level. Um, the, bits of, the bits of biochemistry that actually matter are so obscure, it takes you six weeks to find them out anyway. If you don't have a Krebs cycle, you're dead. I mean, nobody can survive without one, and that's about the only bit of biochemistry you remember. But anyway, I call them ignorant. And nowadays, if a professor called a class ignorant, there'd be a riot on the spot. But this was a few years ago. They were still quasi-polite. Uh, so they turned up at the, at the end of the lecture. I had about 20 of them say, you have no right to call me ignorant when you haven't found out whether I am, because I don't think I am. And I said, well, let's test you. There were about 20 of them. And I said, you all think Gandhi's a great guy, and he said the Sermon on the Mount was the great, greatest piece of literature he'd ever read. Tell me how it starts and what it says. Now, I know, statistically, because I've been asking this question for over 20 years, it's highly unlikely that any of you could tell me the Beatitudes in sequence. Anybody willing to say they could do it? One, good. Were you there the other night? No, there was one, a young lady looking like you. There must be a gene for remembering the Beatitudes. I don't know. Uh, but if you don't know them in order, you, don't, you may have memorized them once, but you don't understand them. And they couldn't do it. So I said, there you are. I'm right. Uh, not me. Bloom was right. And then, bless them, they said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, precisely nothing. It's your problem, not mine. I'm, I'm very sympathetic. Uh, and then they said, you claim to know something we don't. Why don't you teach us? So I said, well, you don't even know the questions, let alone the answers. What you need is an agnostics anonymous group. And so AA was born on the spot, and it was an extracurricular course, and I got 25% of the class every year. And the prerequisite for the class was that you could not claim to be a Christian because it was the non-Christians I wanted. I presumed at that stage that the Christians knew, but they didn't. So it was, that was a turning point for me because as I walked away, I realized that I couldn't do a decent job with the Sermon on the Mount. Here was Bonhoeffer's text for me. It wasn't a verse, it was three chapters. And it transformed my life totally uh, as it took a, oh, I'm still working on it 30 years later but within months it was changing me dramatically uh, because the Sermon on the Mount is about the distinction between being a mere Christian and a disciple we're quite good at step one uh, sort of I often say a reduced evangelism but not step two which uh, if this was an Anglican church I could even get away with this I will say, why were the epistles written? Nobody knows. Uh, no simple answer comes out. Uh, and I say, well, Paul thinks that theology can make life better. So he teaches us theology, and then he says, if you have understood what I'm saying, then you ought not to be like the people around you. You need to be transformed by the renewal of your feelings. And you're nearly Anglicans because I have just trashed the intellectual history of the Christian world and you didn't even notice. Really? Paul doesn't say that. It's not the renewal of your feelings. It's the re renewal of your mind. And the Christian mind is not being built. And that's why we're losing our way. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. 
Now, there's an interesting for the one potential doctor coming along. The introduction to the Sermon on the Mount is fascinating. It says, Jesus, looking at the crowds, he'd healed many the night before, went up the mountain to teach. Yes, it's good to serve and to heal, but it's not primary. Everybody Jesus healed died. But people who truly inhabited the Sermon on the Mount are all in heaven when they die. Healing is transient. Yes, it's important, it happens, it's used, it, it certainly occurs much more often when the gospel first comes to a place because it, it gives the gospel a push. Uh, my oldest daughter is a missionary in Malawi, has seen multiple miracles in her life when they were really needed. Um, but the mind is much more important in the longer term. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is, is getting at you to give you really a Christian psychology, if you like, but much deeper than that, how to organize your mind so that it will grow you into a disciple. That's what the Beatitudes do. The first one, you know. Does anyone else know the first Beatitude? Now, y you do, I'm sure, and you, you, you stayed quiet because you care about these young people. But by the way, if you're asked a question by a prof and you don't know the answer and there are 400 people there, always make a stab at it. Why? Because you'll get it wrong, but you will never, ever forget the right answer again in your life. It is a 100% learning experience. In fact, if there's anything you have great difficulty in remembering, get a prof to ask you in front of 400 people. It's over. You've learnt it. <laughs> uh, so, and certainly in the Christian context, there is no place for intellectual pride. When you don't know, say so. For you, in particular, the, the one being a doctor, it's absolutely essential that you learn that, that, that message. If, I'm, if you're my junior and you won't say, I don't know, I can't sleep at night because you don't know enough. Mark Twain was right. It ain't what he knows that worries me. It's what he knows that ain't so that worries me. And that's most of you. Um, so, the first beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, these are aphorisms. Aphorisms have to be developed. That's the point of them. They're memorable, but they are meant to be a way of opening a much bigger uh, statement. Now, quite clearly, Jesus taught the same things in different places. So, Matthew had heard it many times. That's why we get such a good account. Uh, I was taught when I was young in the university that it was just an editor redacting things, sayings from all over the place. Not a, not a hope that that's true. This is the most powerful, integrated sermon the world has ever heard, but we only have the notes. It takes less than 15 minutes to read those three chapters. I don't believe anyone accepted uh, less than three hours from Jesus. But... We'll find out in heaven. So, the next problem you have, and you do it by comparing Scripture with Scripture, is to find out how he developed it. What, what did Jesus say? I think for Matthew it must have been absolutely stunning because Matthew was doing well materially and was obviously a mess as a person. And I like to imagine he got there a little late, coming for the meaning of life, and the first thing he said is that blessedness, to be blessed, is to be poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean? 
I think it's easiest to illustrate it to you as a sort of comic il uh, illustration. Imagine I could now go zap, and you've all got a bubble over your head, and all your thoughts are on display. Where are you going to hide next week? Could you walk around for a week with your thoughts on display? None of you could. If you did, you'd have no friends at the end of the week, and <laughs> divorce may also be on the cards, I don't know. But, in other words, we are all a mess, and we remain a mess in many, wa in many ways, even after we've become Christian. We struggle with certain sins for our lives, because we know that physics is consequential. When you jump off a skyscraper, you're dead when you hit the concrete. But mor morality, the moral world, the invisible world, is equally consequential. If you use lies as a means of getting to, you become a liar. If you cheat, you become a cheater. And it changes who you are. You will get the consequences in your life. So, I think Jesus said, you are blessed in the sense of a proper poverty of spirit when you face that reality. Poverty of spirit is facing the truth in your own soul. Did anyone jump up and down singing happy songs when they had a close encounter with God? It's not what happens, is it? Flat on your face till God lifts you up, Christ lifts you up. Even the Holy Apostle John, at the end of his life, had the same experience on Patmos. And it's, it's recurrent. It's the way the Sermon on the, the Mount works. It's a, a continuous iterant uh, loop. I I'll explain that a little bit more later. But amazingly, he says, the moment you become addicted to truth-telling about yourself, you already have the kingdom. He's not constrained by time. He knows that anyone, and I don't care what area it is, who's genuinely truthful, will get to Christ in the end, because he is the source of all truth. If they are genuinely truthful. Now, uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, a friend of mine that I had had lunch with on and off for 25 years finally became a Christian. Uh, I'm not a very good evangelist. I'm in awe of uh, Professor Tours in that, tour in, that, in that sense. But John Robson's one of the, the best conservative journalists in North America. He writes the National Post in, in Canada. And 25 years ago, we met because he came uh, to report on a lecture I gave in Ottawa. And as he left, he said to another journalist, the only Christian journalist in Ottawa that I know of, I enjoyed that lecture, I didn't expect to. And she smartly said, would you like to meet him? And he said, yes, as long as he doesn't know that. And she said, I can arrange that, and she did. And we became friends. So we, we, he's, he was an atheist, PhD in history, speaks multiple languages, uh, I didn't speak multiple languages and was a scientist in primarily and a Christian. But w we enjoyed the arguments. About ten years into this friendship, one Saturday, I opened the news, I bought the newspaper, which I don't normally do on Saturday, and he'd written an op-ed piece. One of the most brilliant bits of introduction to Christianity I know. Uh, I wish, in fact, I sent him an email immediately saying, I wish I'd written that. It went roughly like this. He said, the eastern Mediterranean at the time of Christ was not an ignorant backwater, but where Greek learning, Roman pragmatism, and Jewish theology met, some fishermen, a tax collector, and a man who had a seizure on the road to Damascus 
persuaded their friends and then the whole Roman Empire that a dead Jewish carpenter was God. How weird is that? And this God didn't prance around wielding his power. He allowed his creatures to nail him to a stick on a dunghill and that changed the history of the world. How weird is that? Cutting out a bit, he said, by this time he'd read the whole of Lewis because he's of his friendship with me. Uh, I quoted Lewis and so he thought he'd take him apart and Lewis had become part of his life. He was, he was cooked and ready in many respects, but he just didn't know it. But it's an amazing when this sort of thing starts to happen, what goes on next. God is at work. And uh, so I sent him an email saying, I wish I'd written that piece. And because at the end he said, if I'm going to be an honest atheist, I have to acknowledge that people like Augustine and Aquinas all the way down to C.S. Lewis were not stupid. They were smart. So I must read the scriptures. But I'm mortally afraid that if I do, the monk will win the argument. And I said, John, I sent the email saying, I wish I'd written that. He said, you wrote one sentence, but you promised me uh, you would be available when I needed to talk to you. I do. I said, it looked like it to me as well, but you've chosen a bad day. Uh, the cook's away. We'll have to go to the pub. Uh, but he turned up that night from his karate class. He's a black belt as well. And I said, well, what's happened? And he said, well, I'm not an atheist anymore. I believe there's a mind behind the cosmos. I suppose that makes me a theist of some sort because I think that mind makes itself known to us. But what do I do with Jesus? Now, most of you would jump up and down with joy, but I didn't. I said, well, you don't expect me to answer that question, do you? This is far too much fun to watch. Uh, and I didn't answer the question. You've told me what you have to do. You've got to read the scriptures. It took another 10 years before it came to fruition. But his conversion, there was no human input into other than me making cynical comments and teasing him. But... He, he's not going to go back on that. It's solid. He, I could see it coming because what he was writing in the newspapers was steadily becoming more and more apparently driven by a Christian understanding. Now everybody knows. That's poverty of spirit in the sense of beginning to look at who you are and then steadily follow the process. Now, it's not enough. The next beatitude follows and it's blessed are those that mourn uh, for they shall be comforted. Now, I think what he's talking about is when you've found the truth about yourself, the fact that you are not what you ought to be and you know it, you do what you do not want to and you fail to do what you want to with monotonous regularity, that doesn't give you comfort, interestingly. Jesus says you're going to get to the kingdom. I think what he's talking about when he talks about mourning is actually repentance. And that is a gift. Repentance, Lewis describes beautifully at the end of the first chapter of Mere Christianity. He says, repentance is not something God demands of you that he could forego if he wished. Repentance is simply a description of what coming to God is like. Got it? If you haven't repented, preferably if it's serious with, with tears, you haven't really been in Christ's presence. He's been... If you came into God's presence unrepented, you would be wiped out because he's pure holiness. That can't happen. But he's, he's waiting for you because 
After all, the Christian story, the gospel, is a love story. And you cannot force people to love you. By definition, it's not love. So, Christ put aside his visible, undeniable power because he wants a love relationship. And when you really love someone and you've done them harm, you have to come to repentance. It's hard for us to do. I was delighted when I I noticed one day, I don't know, some years ago, you can read the scriptures for years and miss a really beautiful point. In the story of Cornelius, Peter did not want to go, so he had to be bullied by a vision. He went, and then the whole household converted on the spot, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. Do you think Peter was pleased? No, you're like me, you're a cynic. Uh, I don't think he was pleased either. Uh, Many of you would have said, of course. No, I don't think so. Because he could already imagine, how am I going to explain this to the old Jews in Jerusalem? Because they hadn't got to this point. And Luke, in describing what went on, uh, I see it in my mind's eye, these disciples and others sitting around, and Peter giving an account of what had happened, and they were not looking happy, and then one of them says, I guess we better come to it. It appears that God has given the gift of repentance to the to the, to the Gentiles also. It's a gift. It's a gift that is given when you ask for it, but not if you don't. And I think one of the signs of genuine renewal in the evangelical church must be the reappearance of corporate confession of sin on Sunday morning. Simply as a necessary means of coming into the presence of God. Uh, I think huge things will change when that happens. Africans are much better at doing this than we are, so I love going to, to Africa. and They pray. I mean, typically they'll say to the missionaries, uh, they'll bring a cushion. They say, your knees are not in training. Um, we're, we're a long way from that. And re- real repentance makes a huge difference. That's when you are comforted. But don't let that word make you feel that it's all cushy ease. It isn't. My best illustration of what is meant by comfort comes from the Bayer Tapestry, where Bishop Otto, it says, is comforting the troops. And Bishop Otto has a staff with a chain and a spike ball on the end of it, and he's driving the troops into battle. That's comfort, Jesus style. It is the Holy Spirit, the comforter, and the Holy Spirit drives you into battle. That's what you should expect. Uh, That's comfort. Now that leads to the next one, which is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This one took the longest time to come to life for me. And amazingly, the guy who did it was Barclay, whose whose theology I find somewhat suspect at times. But when it comes to street Greek at the time of Christ, there's no one better. And he points out that the word that's translated uh, as meekness, praus, Uh, has a wonderful meaning in everyday Greek at that time. It was used to describe a horse that has been broken in, trained, and is ready to ride into battle. Do you get the picture? You are meek when you wake up in the morning and you say, I'm forgiven for no reason whatsoever except pure grace. Thank you, Lord. Ride me into battle today. It's a lovely metaphor, isn't it? Really, it's stunning, because it's very releasing too, isn't it? Does the horse have any big plans for the day? No. 
It's just obedience. I mean, the, the Christian definition of love is so on the point. If you love me, keep my commandments. No fancy feelings or any of that nonsense. Just obey. And every one of you in this room who's a Christian knows what next bit of your life that Christ wants to take, and he will, for your good. I always used to think that he who has begun a good work and you will complete it. My mother was always saying, and I thought, that's more of a curse than a promise. And it took me 20 years to realize that it was actually a promise. He will complete it. Uh, ride me into battle today. Uh, I hope you have that experience. Because it really is exciting. And it's also wonderfully releasing. Uh, the first time that happened to me, it's the kind of thing you can be prepared for. Um, a good many years ago now, uh, there was an attempt in the Canadian Parliament to legalize euthanasia under the guise of a bill to protect doctors from being sued when they increase morphia doses at the end of life. There was no need for that bill. Uh, you can take people up to morphia at a milligram a minute if you do it the right way at the end of life. You just go up to whatever level is necessary to control pain and it doesn't stop their breathing if it goes up slowly. It, it's a very safe drug at that level. Um, fortunately, one Catholic senator had noticed that all the people presenting to the Senate committee were pro-death people. And there were only about 24 hours left for any other submissions to be even reviewed. So he had to scurry around Ottawa and find at least three that could present. I was one of them. Um, just before I came to speak to the Senate committee, I just sat down by the microphone. Uh, the guy who'd spoken before me was deadly boring and he'd sent people to sleep. Uh, and so the chairman of the committee said, Dr. Patrick, put down your submission. We will read it into the record. Just talk to us. So I was commanded to, write, to put down what I'd written. And I started to speak. I was listening to myself. I didn't write that stuff. Uh, I had, I began to feel a little bit like a prophet must have felt. I mean, poetry, uh, all sorts of things just came, it just flowed. And at the end, I, I was on such a high, I don't remember the ending, but somebody sent me a copy of Hansard, everything is taken down. And the chairman of the committee said, Dr. Patrick, if you use a scalpel like you use words, I would like to come and watch. And it stopped the bill. The three of us between us were used by God to stop the bill and give us another 20 years. But we've given in now. We've legalized euthanasia for the whole of Canada. And the catastrophe is unrolling. But the next one, once you've got to that point, uh, you do inherit the earth in the very best sense. Not the material one. That, that falls away quite rapidly. But the one that is love, joy, peace, the, the fruits of the Spirit. I mean, it wasn't an accident that Mother Teresa and Princess Diana died so close to one another. Which one of those two women was the richest? Now, if you don't immediately say Mother Teresa, you've got to go back to the first beatitude and ask God to show you what your concern about how you look and what you feel and what you will put on what that's doing to your soul, that comes later in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. He said, don't do any of those things. Don't worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will put on. And if you are worrying about those things, you've got to go back to the first beatitude and work your way through again to be free of it. I have 
since I'm on this point just for a moment, and I've learned when these things happen, somebody needs this. I have four, uh, three daughters. My definition of beauty, female beauty, that is the best, and I have one, I've had it on my desk for years, is watching my daughters when they're either watching their own children playing well with their cousins, or more particularly, all my children work for me in Africa for their teenage years, resuscitating malnourished children, many of whom, some of whom died, but most they saved. So as teenagers, all my children had children die in their arms, but they saved many more. And the, the picture on my desk was taken by a, a missionary doctor who was a good photographer, and Nicola had no idea she was being photographed. But she was holding a child whose life she had saved. And the look on her face is beauty beyond anything the cosmetician can come anywhere close to. That's true beauty. Uh, and we've forgotten that. Our faces should show it. Uh, as a Christian traveling around the world, one of the interesting things is how easy it is to recognize your brothers and sisters, especially in places like behind the Iron Curtain. But the, all the Russians say it's easy to recognize a Christian. They have open faces. Nobody else does. We should be recognizable. Now that leads on to the next beatitude. When you get sucked into this kind of life, putting, doing things that the world needs, making, as Jesus said, the world a better place, being salt, which is the point of the beatitudes, it's addictive. Um, people say, when my wife stayed on uh, I was still at the university at the time. The Rwanda War blew up in the summer of 1994. And uh, we'd been in that area for 10 years or more. And we were actually doing an eight-day walk through the Itumbi Mountains, sleeping out in, in, in the bush a couple of nights in this overpopulated world. But we had a shortwave radio, so we heard that things were boiling in Kigali. Uh, so Sally was on the board of World Relief Canada. As soon as we got back, she went up to see what was happening. She was there with my son on the bridge when the refugees started flowing across. She got trapped on the wrong side at one point and managed to get out, but the, soldier, the, the Tutsi soldiers were shooting Hutu who were trying to uh, swim the river. Um, my son was with her, uh, watching this process. It actually led to his career. He's now a professor of stochastic analysis, and it began on the bridge at Goma. But I knew that Sally was not going to come back in September. Uh, all the children were going to be at university that year. I could look after myself. And there were seven-year-olds trying to bring up four-year-olds, look after four-year-olds. She wouldn't walk away from that. The UN soon realized they'd got uh, not only a good administrator, but somebody who uh, cared about people. And she ended up with the difficult camps. And she came back ultimately two years later Absolutely. She'd given everything and more. But she wouldn't have missed it for anything in the world. I didn't get my wife back, and I never will in one sense. Uh, she finds the triviality of our society very hard to handle after that experience. But it was good. It was good. Uh, hungered and thirsted to do something that was right in a difficult situation. And she did it better than anyone else. The next summer, I, was, I went out to see her, 
and I ended up teaching the refugee camps for between three and six hours a day, every other day for two months. I was in tears, they were in tears, and I was simultaneously the happiest man in the world. Because, believe it or not, I was in my late 50s before I gave a summer to God with no strings attached. It was that summer. I'd done good things, but I always decided what the good things were going to be. That summer, I let God decide. And it was the best summer of my life. And I felt his pleasure, subjectively. I mean, it's an intoxicating experience. I was not tired. I could go on teaching without any trouble. Uh, it didn't matter to me that the diet was beans and corn or corn and beans. You know, that didn't matter. At the end of the summer, the final icing on the cake as to the way God operates. Uh, my wife, always seeing uh, where I should go next, she said, uh, before you go back to Canada, I want you to teach the pastors in the camp. There are hundreds of pastors in the camps. And they were not getting any special treatment. We couldn't raise money for the pastors. We could raise it for other things, but people wouldn't give us anything for that. So we did what we could. And this was one of the options. She said, uh, all the missionaries had run away pretty well. They couldn't handle the chaos. But Sally said, I can bend the UN's arm and we can open a mission station and bring a hundred or so pastors in for a long weekend and you can teach them. They can sleep in a bed and have some decent food. So we did that. And I taught for the, the whole weekend. And at the end of it, uh, a lovely Rwandan pastor thanked me beautifully in English. And then he turned to my wife and said, and your wife is the most honored lady in all these camps. I'll never forget that moment. That, that's the kind of beauty you take all the way to the grave and beyond. Because it was true. None of the other people running camps cared about people as people. You were not supposed to stay in the camps. You're supposed to go and come back. An office job, so to speak. That's because the UN can't stand that kind of trauma up close for more than a few days. So it's inefficient to allow people to stay overnight. In those first three weeks, only two groups of people could live through it. Evangelical Christians and Roman Catholic nuns and priests who really loved God. They could do it. The UN couldn't. So Sally even ran microeconomic development projects out of the camps to give them a sense of dignity again, which they needed. They realized that what they'd done was wrong. Uh, it wasn't a planned genocide. Anyone who tells you it was is lying. It was an outpouring of evil. But that's another subject. Now, how does this beatitude lead on to the next? Hungering and thirsting uh, for justice, in effect, is answered. Uh, the next one is very interesting, and it's probably the one that's most often needed in church. Certainly when I'm preaching, I see faces in the congregation that are needed. It's blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Later in the sermon, after the, he teaches the disciple uh, the Lord's Prayer, our Lord says this, we never usually notice it. If you do not forgive you will not be forgiven. That's frightening, isn't it? That can take you right back to the first beatitude again. Uh, blessed are the merciful, for they are the only ones who will receive mercy. It's not a curse. It's a statement of moral reality. And you can look at a church congregation on Sunday morning and see people out there whose faces show that they are miserable. 
And it's almost entirely due to the terrible church politics, people who don't talk to one another, all those kinds of things. Jesus says later, if you're about to do something like give a million dollars to the church and then you realize there's somebody you haven't bothered to speak to, forget the million dollars. Go and be reconciled with your brother and sister before you even move. You don't buy that. It's his anyway in the first place. You're only giving back what you've been given. He wants you not to, not to be like that. Now that's the function, of, in my view, of severely, mal- uh, severely damaged, in our view, children, particularly the mentally disabled, whom we are trying to destroy now by various, uh, well, basically by eugenic abortion. We've already dramatically really reduced the number of children with cystic fibrosis in the Western world, and we're going to do it for everything else. Downs the lot. Now, when we've got rid of those children, the world will be a harsher place. The medievals were wise. They said those kinds of children are closer to God than the rest of us because they do not carry a grudge into tomorrow. And that is true. In caring for severely disabled children, I often had to do things which were uncomfortable, indeed sometimes painful, but for their good. And they would cry. The next day they would smile at me. They don't carry a grudge into tomorrow. We do. And so I think one of the reasons God allows these children, they're not suffering. It's us that are suffering. We, we want to get rid of them because they make us uncomfortable. If you ask a, 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 a person, a child, young adult or teenager with cystic fibrosis, are you looking forward to death? No. I'd love to live without cystic fibrosis, but I don't want to be killed. They're not suffering because they only compare to what they've had all the while. They can see other people, but they don't want to be killed. One of the turning points in my life, evangelistically, came out of this when I came back from working on severe malnutrition in Jamaica for seven years and took the job in Ottawa. I still had some problems that I wanted to tackle. And so I had to find models here. The first one was, in fact, children with cystic fibrosis, who 30 years ago were technically malnourished if you made the measurements. But you needed trained eyes to see it, which I had acquired in the previous seven years. Nobody ever thought about it before this point. Uh, When they died, they they had good skin, uh, usually, because that's the quality of the diet. But they didn't have enough muscle. Uh, So I wanted to see, A, was it reversible? And B, was it worth doing? And so I needed volunteers. The first volunteer was a 15-year-old boy. Have I run out of time? Uh, Can I have two more minutes? I'm only getting halfway through the uh, Beatitudes. But you you can get the rest online if you want. It comes out differently every time, but that doesn't really matter. The content's the same. I, I don't think I've told this story in this context before. It just came up. So the first volunteer was a 15-year-old boy with a body mass of an 11-year-old. He would do anything to get muscle. Uh, he volunteered immediately. And I said, Stephen, I haven't even told you what I want to do. He said, I don't care what it is, I'll do it. I said, given your cough and the fact that I need to put a tube through your nose into your stomach for a month uh, to, to jack up the number of calories you get during that month, and given your cough, you'll cough that tube up perhaps 200 times. Can you stand having it replaced 200 times in a month? He said yes. And he never complained. About halfway through the month, one Sunday, 
I got home from church and the nurses called and said, we have got so many admissions today and Stephen has just coughed up his tube. If you want your protocol followed, you have to come in and put the tube in yourself. I said, fine. So I drove into the hospital. I got to his bed and I was wearing a suit, which I don't normally do. And he said, oh, you've been to church? I said, yes. And do you go to church? He said, yes. It turned out he was Catholic and I was Protestant. Now, I don't live in the South. It's a very liberal place where I live. Uh, you don't talk about religion. You don't talk about faith. I hadn't done so for 20 years. Um, right at the beginning, before I lost my way, I'd done it for a few months, and then it had disappeared for 20 years. Um, I didn't say anything more at that point. But the next week, his amazing mother, who was going to lose three children to CF, she didn't have a normal one, stopped me in the corridor and said, you had an opportunity on Sunday to talk to Stephen about faith. You could do that very well. You should. She had no evidence for that. But she was right. I was in denial because the only way you avoid responsibility is denying that you have any gifts. That was my modem of getting out of trouble, so to speak. I didn't take any notice at that point. Stephen, the first to be tried. We got a few hundred grams of muscle, but it was clear we could do it. And to cut a long story short, we put the first permanent feeding tube into a CF child in Ottawa 30 years ago. If you go to a CF clinic now, 20% of the students, if you, uh, the patients, if you lift, lift their shirt, you, it's what looked like a plastic button on their stomach, but actually it's the entrance to a permanent tube into their gut, and they can get extra calories when we deem it necessary, and it works superbly well. Um, so, uh, a few, four years after um, putting him the uh, doing that experiment with Stephen, I was called to see him in the middle of the day. And when I got to his room, he was clearly dying. And his mom was sitting by the bed. He'd been in a few hours, not saying anything. Uh, if you're dying, it's CO2 slowly going up. You fade away. You, you don't even need analgesics. But when I came in, he said, good, sit down. I want to talk to you. So we were well past doctor-patient, you know, and we were on the same level. And he said, it says in the Bible, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. I'm 19, and I'm dying, and I don't want to. What do you say? What would you do if someone asked you that? Eh, as a challenge to your faith. Uh, I didn't know what to say. Uh, I tried the professorial escape route. Stephen, that's a difficult question, it will take a little while. We both thought Monty Python was funny, we had that in common. And I got a lovely little Monty Python response, he said, with a little smile, I have a little while. Both he and I knew his life was measured in hours at that point. So, he was Catholic, I was Protestant, uh, I started going through the creeds. And of course he believed them all. He believed that God was God, Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus came to die for our sins, that when we confess our sins, we're forgiven, and when we die, we go to heaven. The problem was, he wasn't helping. He wasn't ready to die, and it wasn't helping. So I was praying also, Lord, you know I need help, help. And that prayer is almost invariably answered on the spot, and it was. I suddenly knew what to say by reference to a lovely American writer, Annie Dillard. Any, any Dillard readers here? Probably not, no. She's a great writer. Pilgrim at Tinker Street, 30 seconds. Um, 
she says this, oh yes, God will provide for all your needs, but do read the small print. He decides what your needs are, not you. And I knew what to say. I pointed out to him that children were running on that water, wouldn't have been walking but for him. Little boys are still managing to skate for a minute. I said, you have made a contribution to the world greater than many people will make. I think God is saying something like this to you, Stephen. Stephen, you have done all that I want you to do. You have coughed enough. It's time to come home. Can you believe that? That that will be good? And he looked up and smiled and said, thank you. That helps. I think I can. And he died very peacefully a few hours later. I was not there. But that wonderful mother had not finished with me. And I wouldn't be here today but for her. Uh, she wrote to me about three weeks later. And the note said, it was ironic you were not allowed to give Stephen food for his body. But thank God you were there when he needed food for his soul. His priest had been pushed him away, his family had pushed him away, his doctor had pushed him away. Actually, Stephen's problem was over in three hours anyway. It wasn't for him. It was for his mother. It was very important that Stephen die well, because she was going through this three times. And it was for me a huge guilt trip, because I hadn't had a conversation like that for 20 years. I had to repent and change, and I did. And I'm looking forward to meeting Stephen one day and saying thank you. Don't wait till you're in your 50s, as I did. Sorry for taking more time than I should.